Welcome to Modern Mortality. My name is Nat Bulos. This is the podcast where we talk to experts across fields to examine how they relate to mortality. Today's guest is Dana Cushell. They are currently a nurse practitioner working in a virtual hospital model and recently completed training as a death doula. They trained at the University of North Carolina. They have dedicated time to the fields of geriatrics, end-of-life care, and healing touch. Today, Dana will let us know how their career in nursing and personal life has influenced their perception of mortality. Dana, why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself? Hey, Matt. Um, It's so good to talk to you. Yeah, so I think you covered um, a lot of different things. I work in my sort of day job as a nurse practitioner, where my sort of training and background has traditionally been uh, more geriatric focus, but cur- currently working in a in a hospital model that kind of focuses on um, keeping acutely ill people who are sick enough to be in the hospital in the home setting, which is which is great because it really aligns with my values. Um, and then I've also um, recently completed a training as a death doula. Um, I'm not actually working as one, but um, have interest in doing that in the future. Um, and then I'm also working as sort of a spiritual and energy practitioner kind of doing a lot of different things that relate to death dying and um sort of life in and of itself okay that's great thanks for more of that uh, depth of detail does the can you just kind of paint a picture what a death doula looks like i think we've kind of brushed this topic um slightly in one of the other episodes but it was more of like, oh, that exists. So if you could tell us what the training was like and kind of how that is put into practice, I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, so the way that I see it is that death doulas sort of do, um, they do a lot of different things. I mean, uh, death doula work is sort of um, broad spectrum, meaning that like everybody's sort of needs around death are gonna be different and individualized to the case. Um, So you've got people who have more skill sets around sort of the legality of death and um, preparing for death in terms of getting the paperwork together and being sure that, you know, all the passwords for all of the different um, logins are in one place and um, being sure that, you know, family is sort of prepared from an organizational standpoint um, to approach death. Um, Then you've got people who are more interested in doing legacy work. So helping people who are preparing for death really look at the impact that they've had um, in various places kind of across their life and how they want to be remembered and creating sort of living memorials before death instead of kind of tasking that with the grieving after death, um, which is, you know, really sacred and important work. And then you've got people who are more interested in helping both the patient or the client is the word that you use in that setting, the client in a family um, get comfortable with the actual act of dying. So from, you know, sort of the emotional perspective of what that's like, and also, you know, from a physiologic perspective, what you can expect as you are approaching, you know, your final weeks and days and hours um, and spending time holding space for both the client and their families. So it's kind of a broad spectrum. That's there's there's more than that, but those are kind of the the, the bigger categories of of what that work looks like. Okay, that's helpful because I was wondering about the legal piece. Like, if you would need like a an actual lawyer to help with some of the documentation stuff, but from what I'm hearing, a death doula can kind of supplant like a family member in that role. And then if you can also kind of give examples of what some of these legacy products are that you've come across, I think that'd be cool. Yeah. So um, 
I think there are also like people who work that actually the person who did my training, um, uh, her name is Elua Arthur. She's brilliant. And, um, her, her background is actually as a lawyer and she moved into death doula work and she sort of, um, you know, is uniquely positioned to help people in that standpoint. And I think there are lots of people who work in legal fields who end up moving towards this kind of work, which is interesting to me. Um, what was your question? Your second uh, question? I was just curious about some of the examples of the legacy work that you've come across. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been really fortunate to work in in a lot of different geriatric care settings. Um, and I've seen a lot of this work done through, um, you know, sort of lots of different people. But um, a big one that comes up is recreational therapy. Um, and they're just sort of like helping create slideshows of like meaningful pictures from people's lives that, you know, are sort of going to be played at the funeral or just helping people, I think, it's big business and it's not um, sort of intuitive to look at your life as a whole. I think like when we're in the moment, sometimes it can be challenging to sort of zoom out and see the entire perspective. Um, so helping people look at sort of um, what their impact has been in their family, what their impact their work, um, you know, where were their creative practices, kind of all of those things so that they can, um, you know, have writing and, and memories and a book. And there's lots of different sort of ways that people can memorialize that. But um, I think it's really beautiful and, and important to involve the, you know, the person that's going to be doing the dying in that work. Like, how, how do you want to be remembered? Right. Yeah. And it's, it's like, I don't know, a lot of things that we do day to day. I think most of us aren't thinking about what our legacy or what what we're going to be remembered like is. And then there's other examples where that seems to be a lot of people's primary focus and there's no right or wrong to that, but I just, you're talking to me about like memorializing or bringing to the attention of the, the person what they have essentially been appreciated for. And I, that's a great practice. I, I think it's important that we can do that for each other kind of along the way before we get to dying um, just in terms of living like fulfilling lives. And I think it brings fulfillment to the person who is honoring or observing the things that we appreciate and the people around us. So it ends up being like this altruistic thing, but everybody benefits from it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, we think about like legacy and I think a lot of people probably think that it's limited to, you know, like famous movie stars and and people who did big political movement work and all that kind of stuff. But really like, you know, construction workers and people who work in grocery stores, like, like they leave an impact on our lives and the lives of the people around us and being able to sort of um, step out of like, everybody has a legacy and to what that looks like, I think is, is part is, is important for everyone, but also just part of um, pre preparing for transition. Do you use your healing touch Reiki skills in the death dual space? Or I guess you said you're not really practicing as a death dual yet, but is yeah. that kind of a plan to incorporate all that? I'd really like to. One of my goals, um, you know, is sort of to find a volunteer position where I can really offer that. I do, um, I do have like a, a sort of specific skill set um, in working with dying people. And so I think it would be able, they would, I would be able to blend them really seamlessly. I know there are also specific techniques to help people prepare for death um, that I've got sort of in a book somewhere. So yeah, I'd, I'd really like to do that work. And I know that um, there's a lot of space within hospice centers for people to volunteer their time, um, 
just just offering touch healing touch and you know energy work to people who are in various states of dying do you remember the first time that you dealt with a death personally yeah i do um i've always sort of had a like a magnetism towards death um i have two kind of memories from my childhood one was that i was uh, at synagogue and I watched somebody die. Um, I could sort of like see they, they really closed off, right? Like somebody passed out, everybody stood up to help. Um, they were doing CPR. I don't, it was like before AEDs were everywhere. So they were just doing CPR and, um, I sort of could watch under the chairs. And I just remember like, um, sort of like a, like a quickening or an excitement in my chest. Like, wow, this is really, um, interesting to me. I wasn't afraid. I was, I was curious. And then I also have a memory of um, being on a, a camping trip with um, sort of a, a bunch of young people and watching somebody hit their head and, and pass out and watching my, my um, you know, sort of like the leaders in that group do CPR and, and also having a memory of like wanting to be uh, involved. Like at that time, I have, I, I remember not knowing how to help and that being sort of like a, a difficult experience for me. Like I really wanted to um, not only like do the life-saving treatment, but just like know how to be um, emotionally supportive for the family. So how old were you with both of those incidents? Probably age seven and age 10 is, would be my best guess. Pretty, pretty young. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's young, but it's also, there's a big difference between a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. Yeah. So I was just going to, I was just kind of wondering if you remember like the setting of each of those deaths occurring, if that impacted how you reacted or how you felt, because obviously one is, I mean, it sounds like they were both safe places in terms of one's a religious building and the other one was a, you know, like a curated space for kids. But it yeah. just seems like the, I don't know, it would be very different how you would respond just based on the the surroundings. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's hard for me to point to the surrounding specifically being part of the experience. But in both cases, I sort of, I remember, I remember it being sort of shielded from me intentionally. Like it was felt at the time, I think, just by the adults in the area. And and this has like also been perpetuated sort of in my family unit that like it wasn't a to know about of exposed to it. Um, and that definitely had an impact for me. I couldn't understand why this thing that I was so curious about um, that seemed very natural was like, you know, sort of shielded from uh, me just because I was young. Right. I agree. I, th I think it's interesting how different, especially family units, like some, some families seem to be very open with talking about death and loss and some, like you said, try to shield and protect. And I don't think there's a right or wrong way. Um, and I don't have kids yet, but I just feel like it would be more, it makes more sense to kind of integrate that experience into that young person's life because it's going to be a part of their life going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a big part of, of like why we are where we are with 
with this disconnect with death and dying as a society is that it's really been institutionalized over really used to be that so many people died all the time that there were dead people sort of everywhere and people were dying in the home people were dying in the street um and now we've sort of like lock it up in hospitals or in nursing homes and um are actually really removed from what the process of death and dying looks like so to me it makes sense that like why would a society where we're not talking about death and dying we're not comfortable with death and dying why would uh, of course you would want to shield a child from something that you don't even understand as an adult it's a good point that I didn't think about that if people just perpetually generation by generation are shielded, then they don't. Yeah, absolutely. Change in the zeitgeist or paying attention for, um, that's my favorite word for yeah. everything is what are you paying attention to? But Yeah. All right. Your attention is sacred. I think, you know, what you're paying attention to really def defines you as a person. And it's the one thing that you actually have a choice over. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like those two early experiences with death? I mean, it sounds like you already said this, that you had a curiosity about death. Is that, did those experiences lead you into nursing? Um, yeah, absolutely. I wrote about one of those experiences in my nursing school application. Um, I don't know that I really, I think at the time I sort of, based on the culture around me and based on based on sort of the, the societal norms around death, I really thought that I wanted to focus primarily, you know, my drive was to save lives, right, to prevent death, um, which I think is so normal for a, for a young person who's, you know, 19 or 20 years old to, to sort of orient that way, um, especially, you know, in the mid 2000s, like we, we were talking about death a lot more now. Um, but I really didn't, I didn't expect that getting a sort of random job in geriatrics would, you know, sort of ignite a spark that I didn't know existed in me. And dealing with geriatrics, obviously you're dealing with a lot of people at the end of life. So can you walk us through how you approach a patient in that situation? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I see lots of different people in various states of death. I mean, the way that I sort of think about it and talk about it is that we're all dying all the time, whether we're eight years old or 78 years old. Um, and so I've gotten a lot of experience seeing people in different sort of stages as they lead up to it, um, especially in geriatrics and, um, you know, learning to sort of also fit into different cultures because I think the culture that we come from and are born from really, um, informs our approach to death and our 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 comfort level with death and and sort of the beliefs we have about it and so yeah i've had a, a sort of variety of different whether it's kind of talking to somebody who's well talking to somebody who's sick and at, at really at risk for death or talking to somebody who is approaching death you know or or you know one stage before active death um has kind of been what i've seen and do you, do you think about your own mortality with any regularity? Yeah. I mean, working in geriatrics and, and honestly, like anybody who works in medicine, who doesn't work in pediatrics, works in geriatrics. Um, I mean, seeing, seeing people, people with chronic disease, people who are dying, people who are approaching the end of their life, um, 
really does put a lot in perspective. And I think for me, kind of um, thinking about death more as as a friend, as something that's unavoidable, that is part of you know my natural cycle as a person, really inspires me to look at life a little bit more differently, to be more present in each moment, to um, sort of um, focus more on the things that I want to do while I'm here, not what I want to be or, or how I want to be, but like how I spend my time and who I'm connecting with and um, sort of restructures my values to, to be um, more focused on how sh short our time is here and, and, and enjoying it and, you know, valuing it the best that I can. And do you have any practices around your attention? Yeah, um, I do. I, I'm like a kind of an inventory taker. I do a lot of like what I like to call personal research, which is just like um, taking stock of, of where my time is each week and where my attention is. And, um, you know, where do I owe amends because I'm not living by my values? Like maybe last week I overworked more time, um, like working towards achievements and and doing rather than just being or or taking time to actually like nourish my spirit nourish my heart um and i think that those practices have really helped me sort of restructure on a on a more moment to moment basis um and live more according to my values and more authentically well said and very important to have an awareness about yourself and what your values are and I think that's a great starting place for people that are looking for a way to reorient themselves um, just on a day-to-day -day basis is figuring out what is important and what you want to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, cool. Dana, I see in your CV here that you've worked with a PACE program a lot. Can you tell <laughs> the audience what a PACE program is? Yeah, I call myself a PACE expert because it's actually been like 80 percent of my uh, sort of <laughs> experience as a nurse practitioner. Um, and I've worked within a lot of different PACE programs. Um, yeah, so PACE stands for the Program for All-Inclusive Care of the Elderly. And without sort of getting into um, a lot of the details, basically, it's like a, a program centered for older adults who are um, at risk for um, nursing home placement, meaning, you know, they've got uh, sort of an array of medical conditions that put them at risk for being in a nursing home. They've got sort of um, inadequate family support. They, um, you know, have a functional disability, meaning they're not getting around well. So one or more things that put them at risk. Um, so basically this model is proven to sort of support people in staying at home. And by, and by a home, I mean out of the hospital and out of the nursing home. So basically the government gives PACE programs a lump sum of money um, to become the sort of the insurance company, meaning we get money to sort of give people resources as we see fit. Um, and by signing up sort of for this insurance program, um, you get access to um, really intense geriatric primary care. So meaning I, I would see you as a nurse practitioner for any of your sort of normal follow-up things, but also it's urgent care-ish. Like if you needed IV fluids or you were sick, you needed um, to be seen very quickly. I've got transportation so I can get you to me very quickly or I can come to your home. Um, in addition to that, we work with a huge interdisciplinary team of um, 
you know, dozens of disciplines. We've got physical therapy, occupational therapy, social workers. Um, we've got counselors. I've worked in programs that have, um, you know, chaplains, dietitians, sort of like anything that an older adult would need to sort of be functional, be well, and stay safely at home. Do PACE programs use death doulas, or is it just too new of a field to be incorporated on any kind of level like yeah. that? They're all different. Um, no, I wouldn't say that death doulas are sort of, in, in my experience, I haven't seen them incorporated into any sort of traditional medical systems. Not that PACE is all that traditional, but, you know, it sort of functions within the, the realm of, of, of normal uh, medical operations. Um, some of them do their own hospice. Like I've worked in a, a number of situations where instead of um, somebody being hospice appropriate, meaning, you know, they've got a, a less than six month life expectancy, I actually would continue to care for them up until the, their passing, um, uh, which is which is really lovely, whether within the nursing home setting, because we really just can't safely keep them at home or band-aiding services together to keep them kind of um, in their own home. Um, and then other programs sort of contract out with hospice agencies. But I haven't seen any death doula services, but I would argue that you've got um, different disciplines working within some of the scope of a death doula. Right. Um, you've got a chaplain providing spiritual support. You've got social workers providing counseling. You've got, um, you know, medical teams. You've got um, a little bit of everything, but they don't have the same training as a death doula. There are definitely overlaps. Like in my death doula training, I was like, no, oh, I know this, you know, this is familiar to me in my geriatric background, but um, death doulas get a, a lot of different stuff. It seems like it'd be really cool for case managers to be death doulas, you know, have like that dual yeah. training. Um, yeah, for sure. So uh, how do you, um, like you mentioned that you worked in mediums? Yeah, so I work as a like a psychic medium. I don't always use the word psychic because I think it invokes images of like, you know, Miss Cleo on TV, like really gimmicky people who are sort of acting strangely. Um, but Miss I... Cleo has a, had a big impact on most, most of our lives, <laughs> even if it's at two o'clock in the morning when you're 12 uh -huh. years old. Yeah. She's a cultural icon, you know, but um, <laughs> inspires images of like sort of, you know, people trying to take your money and manipulate you into, you know, spending 10 more dollars to get 10 more minutes. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like that word. It's kind of charged to me, but I use the word intuitive medium. And um, what that means is that really um, I'm using, I'm using senses that are not my traditional five senses to pick up on things that um, are sort of uh, existing in the ether. Um, and that can just be things about a person, um, meaning like the way that they're feeling, I might feel in my system or um, I might have some awareness of um, an experience that they had or, you know, the song that's in their head, um, which sounds nuts, but I think we all have these sort of intuitive gifts that we're born with. I think, you know, we call it empathy and um, we call it sort of our inner knowing or our gut feeling. And these things have been conditioned out of us over time, but that's a whole nother conversation. But um, then mediumship is more sort of traditional communicating with uh people that have died. Um, and that's a skill that I've had my whole life, but I've really only been developing for the last, I would say three or four years. So I just want to go back to the, the point that you just brushed over about it being a yeah. different conversation. I, I actually think that conversation about people lacking awareness or being distracted or not paying attention to their 
bodily cues, like I think that's highly, highly pertinent to the, this conversation about mortality. Yeah, uh, that makes good sense to me. I mean, yeah, I think I think you're right that sort of like death, dying, intuition, sort of like non-religious spiritual traditions um, are, are something that we've really lost connection with over time and, and people deciding for themselves and people have connect c connecting into um, sort of the things that we can't see, hear and feel and touch um, being true, you know, and rather like kind of just um, focusing on the things that other people tell us are right or wrong. And yeah, ex exactly. It, it goes along the lines of like, Trying to, uh, there's something about that talks about this perfectly or sums it up nicely it doesn't you know talk about it all exactly mm -hmm. um basically i want to get this right i love I the love, internet <laughs> i love Sergio simpson and i don't want to do him wrong yeah um we'll wait for a good quote if there's any doubt then there is no doubt the gut don't never lie like basically if you feel doubt in your gut that's real like that's true and that that showed up for a reason but how many people overlook the signals that are in their gut yeah is i mean absolutely it's it's really something that we've lost touch with and um i mean a big part of my my sort of practice outside of my traditional medical work is helping people reconnect to sort of those senses um that you know, tell us for ourselves what is true and what is not true and, and um, trusting that inner knowing, because I think when we are all in touch with that, we can live from a more autonomous and um, trusting place. And yeah, it's just, it's important. Absolutely. And just in my own experience, like I can go back to certain interviews or interactions with people. And I was like, in the interview, I was like, this person doesn't, make me feel good there's something wrong here and then sure enough later on I, I was not wrong you know yeah but it's like what are you gonna do sometimes sometimes you just have to see things through because you're not always right but there's definitely signals that that appear yeah it's a practice too you know it's like a muscle that gets strengthened over time um you know you know we we really have been i think i mean i i don't think it's touch with I think that there are sort of agents in the world that have us mistrusting our own signals um, because it maintains you know power dynamics and systems of control I agree I, I mean it sounds kind of conspiratorial to other people that might not be so in touch with their own signals or awareness but there there's a total advantage to you know whatever power structure it is whether it's a government or a tech company or a food industry that they want your full attention and they don't want you to really have options. They want you to just abide. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's horrible. Yeah. But I think you haven't talked about your work in yoga and I think that kind of dovetails nicely into this piece of the conversation. Yeah. Um, so over time, so I, I just finished a, a yoga teacher training. Um, shout out to Three House Studios in Durham, uh, which is my my home where I where I teach and where I practice. Um, yeah, I I guess for me in my work as not only a healthcare professional but also in my in my work as a 
you know, an intuitive counselor or, or a medium, um, I just noticed that there's so many things that we experience that we need to metabolize, meaning like, you know, you have, you have feelings and you have thoughts and you have things that you experience on a day to day basis. And there's only so much that you can work through uh, sort of cognitively that thinking about it, therapy, those things are really important and helpful. Um, but moving my body and helping other people move their bodies, whether it's, um, you know, physical, like hands-on touch um, or uh, yoga, I think that those sort of like somatic practices to help us uh, get in touch with what we're experiencing and then move, um, help us just be more well. And they, they help you connect to those signals that we're talking about too. Yeah, totally. Pr processing different energy that's stored in different parts of your body. And there's, if there's only two things that every human has to do in order to attempt a baseline of health, it's eat and move. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's pretty incredible all of the different facets that you've taken on training in terms of like connecting with people and helping them to live better lives. So, yeah. Good job. Thank you. I mean, I just, I'm curious about everything. And so, um, I'm very quick to take a training or read a book or I want to, I just like have a hunger for <laughs> wisdom and experience and um, connection. So that really serves me. And um, I think uh, ha having my own experiences, but then using sort of the knowledge that I'm gaining and my personal experience and the things that I see and witness on other people to help, help guide others, not necessarily to, to, give advice or help people know what to do, but help people access different um, avenues of wellness and care so that they can uh, move themselves through whatever they're going through. And what books have you come across that are particularly pertinent to just living a, a better life and, and or around mortality? Oh, that's a good question. Oh my gosh, Matt, I read so many books. Um, this is the hardest. <laughs> this is the hardest question that you've asked me so far. Um, gosh. No pressure. Yeah. No, I'm blanking. I mean, there's just a lot. Um, I read books about uh, sort of connecting to your intuitive power and books about um, sort of getting back to center in sort of a world that's got you pulled in a million different directions and is feeding you lots of information. Um, those two are, one is called You Are Intuitive by Natalie Miles, who was somebody that was really supportive in my early um, intuitive development journey and is somebody who kind of similarly to me doesn't feel special or unique in having spiritual gifts, uh, but really sees those same things reflected in all people and is, you know, on a mission to help people reconnect to those um, gifts and, and spiritual centers within themselves. Um, and then also um, Marley Grace is a big person in my life who sort of helps me um, get in touch with lots of things and their book is called getting to center and there's another one called how to not always be working and and those are have been two also great supports in my development that's that's great can you recite those titles again yeah so getting to center by marley grace 
um, and how to not always be working by Marley Grace. Those are two. And then you are intuitive by Natalie Miles. Awesome. I just love how my reading list keeps growing. Yeah, that's good. Well, Dana, we've covered a lot and I don't, I don't have a whole lot else to ask you, but if there's anything else you want to cover, please feel free. Yeah, I guess the other thing that I've been thinking about is um, we were talking a little bit about intuition, but um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about sort of mediumship and how I think my journey as a medium has really been so connected to my journey in geriatrics, right? I mean, how many times have, um, you know, you as a medical professional seen somebody who's 85 years old, who has multiple system organ failures, you know, has medium stage, stage dementia and heart failure and, you know, is on oxygen and, and nobody's kind of chatted with them about death or dying. Right. Um, and so, you know, what happens ultimately is, is nobody talks about it because it's hard to talk about. And then all of a sudden, you know, somebody's um, in the hospital with a breathing tube and then, you know, it's, you know, sort of termination of that. And, and then they die and it's just like, we all know what that looks like. It's challenging. It's um, there's something about it that doesn't feel right. And so what I've experienced sort of on the other side of things is I, I don't know, some people who are mediums probably have really lovely experiences where like an angel comes and sits on the side of their bed or like they had a vision from their grandmother that, you know, passed and it's just like peaceful spirits that are coming to sort of guide and help them. I've had some of that, but a lot of what I experience is actually spirits who have had really challenging deaths who come over after, you know, and they want to talk to me about the tube and how it hurt and how they didn't get to say goodbye. Um, they didn't get any say in it. They come to me, you know, mostly in the, in the night and they're angry and they're upset and they're confused um, because their inability to prepare for death in a meaningful way actually uh, kind of got them stuck. Um, hmm. And so I think that my hope in, in talking about things and, and, you know, sort of the beauty of this podcast is having people think about their own mortality um, will prepare us more to just sort of, uh, I don't know, depending on what your belief system is, just like be gone or, you know, go to the other side and, um, you know, have more peace, not only as a, as a person who's dying, but as a, you know, sort of a newborn spirit who's figuring out how to have returned are those, are those experiences with patients that you interacted with or are they just kind of random? Yeah, I have had that before where, um, you know, years later, I am getting a visitation from somebody who I cared for. Sometimes it's just like they want to they wanna let me know that they're around. And I think that's really nice because, uh, you know, we, we may have had a, a good connection. And then um, I have had one specific instance where um, the patient was confused. They had dementia. The family... Um, uh, really insisted that they go through dialysis, but I really thought that it was sort of like, I mean, you know, it's never my, my call to tell somebody how to spend their days, but um, his dementia was so bad that I thought it was um, sort of cruel to ask him to go through that, you know, something that he really couldn't understand, something that was challenging, something that he had lost sort of all coping skills to deal with. Um, I'm and so they he offered. ended up, yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised. Um, there's, there's, yeah, I, I, 
that in that case, the nephrologist I think was definitely on my team. But I think when somebody wants something and you've got the skills to do it and it's like somewhat reasonable, then you, you know you kind of have to do it sometimes. Um, but the 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 patient ended up having a pretty challenging few years. This was after I I left the program and I heard about it later. Um, and then he ended up dying and I got a, a sort of a, a visitation from him and was asked to, you know, sort of help him find a little bit more, more peace, which is usually what the ask is. And so, mm. um, yeah, just, uh, you know, it kind of breaks your heart. Absolutely. And exactly. This is why I think this project is important to help people not end up in that situation and be able to have as much of a say as possible. And obviously we don't know the timing of, when someone's going to pass. Can I have any time? Thinking about it more. Options and help and preparation that you can have. And yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I think that's really neat that you make yourself available in that way. Have you had any? Yeah, I have boundaries. But <laughs> yeah. That, well, I mean, if you want to talk about something that's a whole other conversation, I think boundaries is a whole other conversation. Oh, yeah, for sure. If you work in any of these fields, boundaries is sort of like the bread and butter of, of what your work is in this lifetime, I'm sure of it. <laughs> Definitely. Have you had any near-death experiences yourself? Um, hmm, that's a good question. Um, not, I wouldn't say that I've ever been really close to dying like I've never I've never had an experience that put you know was like a, a very 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 serious risk I have had um really scary experiences that are somewhat close to death I don't know they're not close enough to call them like a true NDE in my opinion but like what's where an NDE I, or sorry a near-death experience an NDE, oh, NDE sorry. yeah yeah um but I have had you know like I I survived a, a sort of mild tornado last year that really confronted me with like mm. my own feelings around death and dying and and what it feels like to be in a body with a nervous system and have sort of my animal instincts tell me to be afraid where you know my sort of value system is um is telling me that it's okay to die it's like you can really embody um fear of death and avoid it in your in your own sense of walking in the world, but also uh, have it in your value system that it's okay to die and death could be around the corner and that be okay. So I've been really sort of at the intersection of those two things um, since that experience and have a lot more compassion for people who are sort of wanting to go out kicking and screaming. Like it's very natural, I think, to be afraid of death because of how we're you know, sort of trained to think about it. And because we have parts of our body that are telling us like, Hey, don't die. Yeah. Well, I think that's where the paying attention piece comes into play again. Because yeah, the natural response is fight or flight. And in that situation, I think mm -hmm. the storm example is a really common example that a lot of people can relate to. At least I can personally relate to that. And yeah, like last summer I was driving on the highway and then like there were storms in the area, but I, there was no tornado warning that was broadcast anyway. And then all of a sudden there was like ping pong size hail and winds picked up. And I was just like, Oh my God, I'm going to be picked up in the middle of this highway by a tornado and die. And like, it just forced me to 
to resign everything in that moment and just be like, well, that might happen and just keep going. But yeah. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the more we can dialogue with our own nervous system and like, hey, thank you so much. I really hear that you're trying to protect me, but also it's okay. But it's, also it's important. <laughs> you have no control here, buddy. Yeah. 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 Let go or be dragged. Am I right? Exactly. Those are the options. You either get hard and, and miserable or you let go and just accept what happens. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. I appreciate your time here. Yeah. And I will just wrap up if if that's it. So Yeah, that sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Awesome. Yeah, great. Greatly appreciate it. The contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only. A patient-physician relationship is never established through this medium, and nothing on this podcast should be considered medical advice. If you are having medical or emotional issues, please seek evaluation and treatment from a trained and trusted professional. The views reflected in this podcast do not reflect the views of any entity outside of the conversation. Please share this with three people. Thanks for listening.